Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us what only your spirit can do is to awaken our souls to its, the truth of your word, its applications to our lives, the revelation of him who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray, Lord, as we contemplate the city of Jerusalem and all that it means, we pray, Lord, that you would lift our hearts to the very gates of that city whose builder and foundation is you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So cities are places where people reside and engage in life. It's where we engage in commerce, politics, community, worship, birth, death rituals, love, conflict, entertainment, disappointment, and of course so much more. Cities where people have come together, it's always been this way. From the very ancient world, both in the Middle East and in the Americas as well. And cities are symbols of a reality that is beyond themselves. We understand that in our own country or in the world, when we think of a city like Philadelphia, not in the modern sense, but in its historical context, it's the city of liberty. It's where the Liberty Bell resides. Boston, the shot heard round the world. Las Vegas, well, we will leave that to your imagination. Don't go too far with it. Movies, Los Angeles or Hollywood, Detroit, cars, Hong Kong, commerce. So we understand this, and it's not unusual that we would find that cities in the Bible also have symbolic importance. That if we merely consider them on their uh, on their literal or or earthly level, we miss something that is very important. Jerusalem, also known as Mount Zion, or just plain Zion, because of the mount where David built his first palace. It's even regarded as the church and the call to worship that we read this morning. And in these Psalms of Zion, they're often called the city of God. Or the city of the great king. And they stand more than, for more than uh, a place where people live in the high country of Israel. 
It stands for a heavenly vision that finds its fruition in that city which descends from heaven, from the very throne of God in Revelation 21 and 22. Or as Patrick Reardon points out, and I love this statement, Jerusalem is vastly more than Jerusalem. Psalm 48 is more than a song about stones and stucco. It is a song about something exalted and eternal. It is a song of Zion. About Zion's throne. And about Zion's king. It's not the only song of Zion. As I said, there is a kind of triplet here, 46, 47, and 48, that are dubbed songs of Zion. But there are others, Psalm 76. I have always loved Psalm 84. And of course, Psalm 87, we have sung two hymns based upon that song alone. Glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of God. I heard a Jewish song about Jerusalem and it lifted the singer, the worshiper, no higher than the city you can visit in the Middle East. And they thought, how empty. The scriptures open it up for us in a way that takes us beyond this world and leads us to the next as well it should. But songs of Zion are a tradition in the Psalter. They are songs about the city with an an eye to what it represents and what it will become. The Psalms here are songs that are written for a great deliverance. Perhaps it was Hezekiah's, uh, wouldn't have been his defeat, but he wakes up one morning and all the Assyrians under Sennacherib are dead and they march away. Historical record says that Sennacherib writes, I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. But he never said he took the city. (laughs) Quite an interesting remark. As you notice, this song is among a group called the Songs of Korah. They begin in Psalm 42, and the last one is Psalm 49. So there's this grouping. They're not written by David now, as the first 41 psalms are attributed to. But we have this grouping of nine or so that are attributed to the Sons of Korah. That's interesting. Think of the sons of Korah. Think of Korah. He was a rebel. He was judged by God for his attempt to overthrow 
Moses in the days of their wilderness. Severely judged. And yet even, even his sons are now serving in the temple, writing songs for us to sing today. And my friend, that's a testimony to the grace of God. We all have skeletons in our closet which we would wish not to uncover, just as they did. But theirs were very public and notorious. And yet God used them greatly to his glory. So here is a song of praise, which I would say it's a song of praise for the gift of the heavenly city. And I think that will make sense as we go through this. Let us read the psalm together. Please follow. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, and they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, and they took the flight. Trembling, they hold, uh, they took, trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, you have seen the city of the Lord of hosts in the city of our God, which you, which God, will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go about her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. So in your bulletin, I have given an outline that we'll, we will touch on each of these points. Zion's splendor, Zion's security, Zion's strength, and Zion's survey. Zion's splendor, first four verses. Indeed, this really sets the tone and the theme before us. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom at the meditation. My heart shall be understanding. I will, you know, I'm reading the next week Psalm. <laughs> Let me back up if I've confused you. <laughs> 
I jumped on Psalm 49. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. With her citadels, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The theme is set forth here in these three verses. The beauty, simply put, the beauty of Zion as God's impregnable citadel. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 5, verse 35, by saying that the earth is his footstool and Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Of course, by this time, uh, the Lord Jesus has been revealed as that great king who has come to take, to rule his people. Again, I point out what Patrick Reardon has said, that Jerusalem is vastly more than Jerusalem. Again, we are not talking about bricks and mortar. We are talking about something that is exalted, that is beyond the earth and earthly imagination. It's in the context of all of Scripture. Jerusalem is more than a mere capital for the Jewish people. It is a heavenly city. Jerusalem on earth can be destroyed. The heavenly Jerusalem, as we read here, is an eternal city. It's an eternal city. And so the language betrays the fact that we are talking about more than just an earthly capital of the Jewish people. I also find it interesting that Jerusalem on earth is often equated with the people of God themselves. It's a symbol of the church of Jesus Christ. Psalm 87 makes this clear. Psalm 34 makes this clear. And other songs of Zion likewise. I am taken by what John uh, was said to John in Revelation 21 verses 9 and following. He says, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. You want to see the heavenly city? You want to see the city of God? Look to where the bride is. Because it's where the bride is that the king dwells. He dwells within the citadels and the ramparts of the hearts of God's people gathered in his name. This is the city of the great king. And the city is great. It's splendorous because the king is great. It's not because of any of its construction. It's not because of the beauty of the temple. It's not about... The, the, the heights upon which it sits. It's about the fact that God has chosen Jerusalem as the place where his name would be attributed and worshipped. It's where he placed his name. The city's beauty or splendor is not in the ramparts, but in the Lord 
who dwells there. Derek Kidner says this, Zion is more than a local capital. The struggle concerns, the struggle of which this psalm is born out of, concerns the whole earth and the whole span of time. The outlines of Jerusalem above with its great walls and foundations which are forever, we read about in Revelation 21-22, are already coming into view. And Andrew Boner dubbed this psalm, The Mighty One Becomes the Glory of Jerusalem. Zion's splendor is bound up in the splendor of our king. Not in the fact that it's old and a great tourist destination, but it's where God chose to put his name, to represent his people, and to stir their hearts to look to that Jerusalem above. Zion's security. No earthly city is secure. So when we think of Zion's security, we're thinking about the security of a place that cannot be touched by human hands. Verses 4 through 8, we read, and verses 4 through 8 sound a lot like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? They want to cast off their chains and throw off their fetters. All the while God is in heaven laughing at that silliness. And so Psalm 48 verse 4 says, For behold, the kings assemble. They come, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Forever. So in Psalm 2-like fashion, the kings of the earth assemble. Not just Sennacherib, not just one king, but the vision here is the hostility of the kings of the earth toward the city of Zion. The kings of the earth assemble in opposition to the city of God. And that has, been, that has been the conflict of the ages. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have been in conflict. But one thing is clear in that promise in Genesis 3. 
is that the seed of the woman will strike the death blow to the seed of the serpent in the gospel. Yet there is rebellion, and their rebellion here that is described as short-lived. Their demise is perhaps inspired by the, uh, the defeat of Sennacherib in Second Kings. And it pictures the enemy attacks on the people of God. But we are reminded that the powers of kings and cultures and commerce will wilt before the king of kings. This psalm expresses a confidence that seems identical to that of the apostle Paul. When he said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, nakedness, famine, sword. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Julius Caesar was known to have said, Veni, vidi, visi. I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, in a similar vein, we might say that the author here says, they came, they saw, they panicked, and they fled. Zion security. Does that mean that Zion City will never have trouble in this world? No, we, it's guaranteed that we will. But the victory is in the king who cannot be anything other than victorious in the end. And that's Zion security. So when we get all worked up about the way we think things may be headed in our world even today, Look to, look to the king of Zion. Zion's strength. And consider this with me for a moment. The word says, let, Zion, let Mount Zion be glad. And if it is true that the joy of the Lord is our strength, as Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 8.10, then the strength of Zion is the joy we have over the gospel, over the steadfast love of the Lord. We read in Psalm 48, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God. And again, this is about the 24th time that steadfast love is mentioned. It's a technical term in the Old Testament, speaking of God's loving kindness we could just simply say the gospel, the good news. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Now we come to the temple where sacrifices are offered and where the picture of the shedding of blood is displayed, where the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the 
world, the people of God, and it looks forward to the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. The right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Here is a portion filled with joy, and I would maintain that indeed is the strength of Zion, that we are a joyful people. And circumstance at the end of the day cannot ultimately steal our joy because of the steadfast love of the Lord. Here we see that our thoughts over the gospel are joy-producing and they excite worship. The very reasons that we have gathered here today. The city's strength is not in her walls or her towers or her springs, but in her temple, in the steadfast love of the Lord. Throne and temple connected together. A worshiping people are a strong people because a worshiping people are a joyful people. I enjoy coming to Emmaus Road because your leaders exude that joy as you do as well. As well it should because of the gospel we rest in. Zion's joy is over God's saving acts. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And interestingly, not merely joy for the Jew alone, but joy of the whole earth, as God intended, where he is praised everywhere. And finally, we come to Zion's survey. Walk about Zion. Do a walkabout. Go around her number of towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Recall how Nehemiah walked about the broken walls of Jerusalem to inspect them by night and to survey before his building program began in Nehemiah 2. When we visited Israel back in 1997, which seems an age ago, one of the things that we enjoyed was the rampart walk, where you climbed the walls and just walked all the way around the walled city of Jerusalem as it then stood. Walk through history, you walk through time, you passed towers and ramparts, and you can do a complete circumference in that way. And by the end, we were exhausted and made our way back to our hotel night before we returned. And we read through the Pilgrim Psalms together. As I check this out in my diary and reminded of it, Psalm 22, 3, Jerusalem is a city 
tightly impacted together. It still is today, and it is then. And the description I see in Revelation 21 and 22, it seems as well. Only I expect there's probably no refuse in the streets. But I am intrigued here that I think we're given, or what might be suggestive, meditatively, we are to ponder the glories of the heavenly city. There's, we are to take surveys of what is in store for us. We are to walk about, do a walkabout of the heavenly city. And God has given us two incredible chapters in Revelation 21 22. And I would add to that Hebrews 11. We read about Zion as being an impregnable citadel. It is eternally blessed. The glory of God and his son is the light. It needs no light of the sun and the moon because the glory of God and the glory of his son are its lamp. Such a survey would be expected, I suppose, after the lifting of a siege in review of defenses. Yet the towers and the ramparts and the citadels that are mentioned here are more than the mere temporal structures surrounding the city. There are other ways to think about this. It's an invitation to think and to ponder. John Owen considered the bulwarks, the ramparts, to be summed up in five. I don't know where he pulled the number out of it. It worked for what he was wanting to say. What are the bulwarks of the holy city? Jesus is the king. The promises of God define her borders. The Lord's watchful providence over his people. His special ecclesial presence among his people, where two or three are gathered. And of course, the covenant of God. And so remember how we began our service this morning with these words after the fall, after the fall, sinful human beings. I back up. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all the earth and to the spirits of righteous righteous people made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. And when we come to Mount Zion, as it were, and when we reflect and we walk about its walls, all of these things are what we come to. 
And therefore, let us worship, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. So after the fall, human beings lost their access to God and to his holiness. And could not, God in his holiness could not endure, tolerate their unatoned sin, our unatoned sin. Very quickly, we find the patriarchs worshiping God at an altar of sacrifice. After Exodus, sacrifices were offered at a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness, and then later in the temple of God, where God had placed his name in the city, Jerusalem. And the whole city derived its sanctity from God's house. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus, Christ replaced the symbolism of the temple with the reality of his incarnation, the Emmanuel. And through his spirit, the people of God are now his living temple. We have assembled that temple this morning as the living stones have gathered together to worship the living God. But the true Mount Zion is a heavenly reality to which we look and long. That is known in the earthly assembly of the saints. And there's a very real sense that when we gather, we gather, as Bunyan put it, to look through a perspective glass, a telescope, if you will, that we might see through the haze of this world the formation of the gates of that city. And that's why we come here. See if we can get another glimpse of the king. There's that old hymn that you're familiar with probably. We're marching to Zion. Uh, the chorus is, we're, Come we that love the Lord and let your joy be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne and thus surround the throne. We're marching to Zion. And we are. We are on a pathway. We are on a journey on our way to the heavenly city. We are pilgrims passing through a home that is not our own. We have no permanency here. And this psalm indicates that we should be meditating on Zion, walking about her ramparts. Calvin, for instance, in his institutes, in his section on the Christian life, has a whole chapter that is committed to discussing the importance of meditating on our future home. It's been part of the Reformed 
spirituality, that heaven should be in our view as often as possible. Most of the good hymns in the hymn book will find a verse that lands on death and heaven. I recently suggested in a Bible study that I was attending that perhaps these are two chapters we ought to try to memorize to embed this word into our hearts. A young pastor's wife who took up that challenge was immediately met with the fruit of that when her mother died. And she testified to me of being challenged to do that prepared her heart for the loss of a family member. Marching, meditating, memorizing can only, on such a theme as this, can only lead to joy unspeakable. Let's pray. Dear Lord, glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for such visions as is given us here, the hope that we have not only in Jesus, but what he has prepared for us. He said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back and receive you unto myself, that we will be where he is. So Lord, increase our longing for what will soon be ours in its fullness. And we pray 